but also pull out your bulletin and flip to the back. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 5, and with particular attention to verse 8. Well, for the sake of context, let's read 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to read these verses with an understanding that the second commandment begins in verse 8 and ends in verse 10, which is the focus of our study this morning. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands or thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, one more prayer. Our Lord God, deal bountiful with us, your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So, as I had mentioned, we pick up our catechism question a week early. Uh, we've made our way into looking at the Ten Commandments, and we find ourselves at the Second Commandment. Now, in order to help us, I thought it would be good for us to review one Two and number 40, uh, and you'll see why. Here, I don't think, I think everyone here is aware of the catechism series. Yeah, so we don't, we don't have to introduce that. Number one, the first question in our catechism is, what is the chief end of man? If you know it, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And some of y'all can probably sing that pretty well, too. Some of you kiddos. The second, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify Him? And the answer is the Word of God which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm sorry, and we're going to look at number three as well. So what do the scriptures principally teach? Because the scriptures are where we are to go in order to know how we are to live for the glory of God and enjoy Him forever. Well, the scriptures, answer number three, principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what, here's the word, duty, God, another word, requires of man. We generally push all the way to 
question 40, and this language picks back up in question 40, what did God reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the answer ultimately is the moral law. And we looked at the question, what's the moral law? It's the Ten Commandments. What do the Ten Commandments summarize? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. So you think about those questions and answers, and you start to think, okay, I hear the word rule and duty and requires and obedience, and that sounds really antithetical or opposite to grace and gospel and Jesus And we don't have time to go into the idea of the difference and similarities and the way the gospel and the law work separately but together for the ultimate good uh, and salvation of people. That might be something we can pick up another time. But here's what I want us to understand is that rules and obedience and commandments do not fall away simply because we're in Christ and forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. Uh, obedience and faith cannot be separated. And you have to remember that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then you also have to remember that as Jesus comes and inaugurates the new covenant, he gives us his spirit so that we can obey God, Ezekiel 36. And so just always we have to remind ourselves of, Uh, of the fact that just because we find ourselves in the new covenant using phrases and benefiting from grace and mercy and good news, it does not pull us away from requirements, rules, duty, and obedience. That's for, in reality, all people of all time. It's all peoples of all time's responsibility to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So uh, we get now to the Ten Commandments. Uh, we looked last month at the first commandment. Uh, the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And what is required in the first commandment was the question we looked at. The first commandment ra- requires us to do a few things. Know God and to acknowledge him. Those are two separate things. To know is internal, to acknowledge, we can argue, is to make external what you know is internal. But to know and acknowledge that Yahweh is the one true God, one and only, no one beside him. And not just that he is the one true God, but as covenant children, people, he is our God. He has called us into himself. And out of all that, we must worship and glorify him as the question, as the answer says, accordingly or appropriately. So then we get to question two, or I should say commandment two. So commandment one says, Yahweh is God, worship him. Now commandment two, you might think, is about the prohibition of idolatry, which it is. But to its core, it is also giving you the proper and improper way of how to worship Yahweh. So commandment one acknowledges that we must know and acknowledge God as the only God. Commandment two really tells us how we are to worship him. And that's 
where we pick up this morning. So if we look at the back of your bulletin, you see we're actually covering three questions this month. What is the second commandment? What is required in the second commandment? What is forbidden in the second commandment? So we've already read the second commandment out of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And yes, it is in Deuteronomy 5, but also in Exodus 20. But we're really going to get to see a lot out of this book. And so this is where we're reading it today. So let's look at question 45. What is required in the second commandment? And then question 46. And then I'll give you our, our outline for this morning. What is required, question 45, in the second commandment? The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire or whole, W-H-O-L-E, all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. Question 46. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So here's the plan this morning. An explanation of the commandment, first. A need for the commandment, second. And then application of the commandment, third. So let's begin with an explanation of the commandment. And and most of the time when you want to understand something, it's always good to go back. To look backwards. And if we can look at uh, Israel's history, which at this point in Deuteronomy is really looking at all of the Old Testament from the first five books of the New Testament. But when we think about Israel specifically, we see a few things. Israel's created through God, revealing and calling Abraham to himself. I'm going to say this, this this phrase a lot by his word. Uh Israel begins to grow through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From there, we see out of Jacob, Israel grow into these 12 tribes. And then after that, after that initial growth, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And coming out of that, because they do not remain in Egypt, but they're redeemed by God himself out of slavery and bondage and leads them out, I would say, by his word through Moses. He redeems them. And then now they're a a significantly larger family. And God takes this family, and it's debatable if it's 30,000 to 2 million. It doesn't matter. It's still significantly larger than the 70 that went into Egypt. Comes out this significantly larger family. God, by his word, makes them a nation. Makes them a people. His own people through a covenant given by his word. He reveals himself to Israel and his law and his will to them by his word. What's one thing that has not happened from Genesis Four, up until this point, no one has seen God. No one. From the time Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, no one sees God. Now there's the angel of the Lord, there's burning bush, there's fire on a mountain, there's a pillar of 
cloud. There's a pillar of smoke. These are all theophanies. These are all God taking form and shape outside of himself to make himself known to Israel. And the apex of this really finds itself. I think we looked at it maybe a Wednesday ago or something. I don't remember. But Exodus 33, when Moses is begging God to make himself known. That he could see his glory. And, and what does God tell Moses? No one can see my face and live. So remember, we're, we're trying to get the understanding or the explanation of this second commandment. And what, what can we learn from Israel's history? From Israel not once seeing God, but, but being built, grown, created, and sustained and redeemed through the word. Here's a couple things we know about God. Through his interaction with Israel and beyond. Yahweh is a God who desires to be known. He wants to be known. And therefore, if God wants it, he gets it. And so not only does he desire to be known, he makes himself known. And I, all the, all the whole time I want you to have John 7-3 in the back of your mind. Eternal life is what? Knowing God, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So God wants to reveal himself, make himself known. He wants to be in relationship with people. And we know that he does this from the beginning to the end through covenant. But how does he, re- well, I, how does he reveal himself? Not by showing up and saying, hey, look at me. But through speaking, through his word. Yeah, yes, there's a sense that God can, that the, the, the character or the attributes of God can be seen by the eye to some degree. Romans 1, right? We see the divine power of God in creation. But there's no knowing God through that seeing. Okay? The Bible time and time again, tells us that true knowledge, truly knowing God, true eternal life, only comes through the divine word of God. Through Him speaking what He spoke. A relationship with Yahweh, with the God of the universe, always happens through the word of God. There's an old confession called the Belgic Confession, mid-16th century, one of, the, one of the oldest Protestant confessions. And it says this. I, I, I read through this this weekend, and I loved it. And it says this. God makes himself known to us more clearly, as opposed to creation, more clearly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in, his, in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. And again we go back to John 17. And Jesus lays this out in this beautiful way. Uh, of how God desires to be known. And is making himself known. And, and, and John, we're not going to turn there. But you go and read it this, this week. John 17, 2. We, when we touched on this. It says, um, 
the father gives or uh, the son gives eternal life to all whom the father has given him. Well, verse three says, well, what's that eternal life? Well, it's knowing God. And then verse six tells us how Jesus did that. Now, you could just say that Jesus said, hey, look at me. But he did something else to the apostles, to the disciples. It says, for I have given them the words you gave me. They received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. So how is truth known? Not by the eyes, but through hearing the word of God. In verse 20, we know this one. Jesus in his prayer to the Father says, I do not ask for these only, the twelve or the eleven, but also for those who will believe in me through what? A play that the apostles put on, a skit that they do and show the gospel. No. Through the word that they will give. The word that the Father gave to the Son, the Son passed down to the eleven. The eleven has passed down to the world. And through believing the word, we have life, a relationship with God, and knowledge of him. From Israel to now, Ozark's Bible Church, God has made himself known... He's made what he desires known, not through what we've seen, but what we've heard. And you're thinking, okay, why is this so important? Because this this principle is the core of this commandment. That God makes himself known not through what is seen, but through what is heard. So it should be no surprise to us, the God whom we should know, commandment one... Yahweh is the only God, right? Have no other gods before me. Commandment one says this is who you should know. Commandment two says this is how you worship him. So if he reveals himself and gives knowledge of himself, not through seeing him, but hearing his word, how do you think we ought to worship him? Not through sight, but through hearing and keeping his word. And all of that is tucked away in the second commandment. And you're thinking, I don't see it. Well, let's look at it real quick. And we'll break this apart as we go. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. Now, I will tell you there's two parts to this commandment. Uh, it's disproportional. The negative is the largest in his verse 8 and 9. And then the positive is verse 10. I want you to realize that verse 8 and 9 is how you ought not to worship God. And it is by what you want to see or the visible or the thing that you can touch. Where the way we are to worship God comes out of verse 10, but showing... Well, let me back up. If you worship the wrong way, what happens? The end of verse 9. I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there's a connection to worshiping God wrongly and hating God. And if you do that, he will visit your iniquity. But if you worship rightly, verse 10... He shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first part of that was you want to worship 
by what you make, a carved image, an idol, something that resembles something you can see. But God says to worship me rightly, you love me and keep my commandments. Well, where are those? What are those? Those are his words. You don't see them. You hear them. We have to see this principle that he's setting us up. It's not about what you see or can touch, but it's about what you hear. And what we hear is the word of God. So two two passages. Again, this isn't this this just isn't about worshiping this this passage. I'm sorry. This commandment cannot be about worshiping false gods. And why do I say that? Because the first commandment was about worshiping false gods. Do you understand that? There is no other God or have no other gods before me. That's where false or that's where false gods are condemned. This commandment is about how we worship the true God. All right. A couple couple illustrations. Put your finger in Deuteronomy. Go to Exodus 32. Hopefully this will help you understand that this isn't just about making false gods. But this is about worshiping how you are to worship the true God. What did I tell you? 32? Exodus 32. And you're probably familiar. You see the heading there. The golden calf. Right? So your assumption, if we're not thinking about this rightly, our assumption is, oh... Israel wanted a god, so they went and made made a cat. They they made an image out of something that was created. That's true, but but we have to understand that it goes beyond that a little bit. Um, look at verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered them uh, themselves together to Aaron and said to him, "Up, make us gods." Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of the gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now they know that Yahweh did that. They know that, right? They know that. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the plagues. They know Yahweh exists. They know he's powerful. But what's been going on? He's been gone for a little bit. Him and Moses are having a powwow. They're getting a little impatient. They don't see any progress. They can't put their hands on anything. They can't see anything. So what do they want? They want to satisfy their flesh, their eyes, and say, Aaron, make us something so that we can worship it. Look what he says. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. It said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Woe. To who? The Lord. They are going to worship Yahweh before this golden calf. Do you see what they're doing? It's not as if they decided to make up a God. 
Their whole intent was, yeah, we know God is is real. We saw the things that He did, but He's kind of we're, we're kind of getting concerned. We just need to make something so we can worship Him the way we want to. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter four. This chapter sets this commandment in place. As we, uh, I don't want to get too far here. Let's just go to 15. And as we're thinking through this, again, think of eyes and sight and hear and ears and hearing. Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourself very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. That's Sinai. That's Mount Sinai. That he spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware. Lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged birds that fly in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your what? Your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars all the host of heaven and be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the lord your god has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven we must understand that the law of god is a teacher The law of God teaches us something about God and something about ourselves. One commandment, this one or any of them, teaches us about the the character of God or the nature of God, while also revealing to us something about our nature. And typically, well, not always, they're contrary. What the commandment teaches you about God and then teaches you about yourself shows you that we're out of step. But then the commandment also is a help, a hedge, a guide to to bring us into conformity with the will and nature of God. So now. This is number one, why we must study the Ten Commandments, why we, we cannot We cannot abdicate the law of God. We cannot remove ourselves from it. We must understand that the law of God is given to us as Christians to drive us to Christ, but then also teach us how to follow Christ. Apart from the law of God, you cannot glorify God and enjoy him forever. You cannot follow Christ because what are you doing when you follow Christ? Through two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. We must do this in Christ, in the new birth, in the new covenant. We must pursue the law of God as we understand we are forgiven, made righteous through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And only by faith can we even pursue the law of God. So, we, we, we finish our first point, our understanding this commandment, 
by reminding us that it is God makes himself known and calls us to worship, not through what we see, but what we have heard. Now, the need for the covenant, and this is where we touch on the difference of God's nature and our nature. What is it about man? So our second point, the need of this commandment. What is it about man that brings us, brings about the need for the second commandment? You and I must always understand that human beings were created to worship. That's why the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ever, every human being that's ever existed has a disposition or a bent to worship. It's supposed to be Yahweh. And if you go and you examine history from the very beginning, outside of scripture even, you know that man desires to worship something. But at the same time, Every man, every man, all hum- humanity is also fallen, engulfed by sin. And what does that look like? Well, while we're created with a bent to worship, our bent to sin takes us away from him whom we should worship. Isaiah 59, don't turn there, let me just read it for you, um, gives us a great image of what it looks like for fallen man to pursue his uh, his des- his design and the desire to worship uh, when when he is still in his fallen nature. This passage, mind you, from Isaiah 55 or sorry Isaiah 59, is quoted from Paul in Romans 3 when Paul is discussing the ravaging extent of sin upon the human being, and this is. The picture that is given, listen carefully. What does it look like for man to worship in his sinful nature? Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. That's the picture of a man in sin trying to fulfill its desire to worship that was intended for Yahweh and him alone, groping in the darkness, blind in the daylight. This is what it looks like. We uh, we our desire to worship has been corrupted and distorted to the point that is uh, it is unrecognizable as acceptable worship. I was thinking about that, and all I had in my mind, and this illustration will fall on deaf ears if you're under 30. A scrambled TV channel. It's like you know something's there, but you can't make it out. 
You see a picture. You see a pixel. You think, oh, maybe that. No. You cannot discern. You cannot figure what the image is. That's our attempt to worship in our human nature. And that picture is also what God sees when we try to present him worship within our flesh. Okay? Distorted. Scrambled. How sin affected our created desire to worship? Well, as I said, the sin nature bends us away from God like a car out of alignment. You all know, you've all driven a car that's been out of alignment, and you're just always having to keep it pulled a a little bit this way, because if you relax, you're... You know that. You know that. But you also know that bent as a human being. That when you when you least realize it and you've not been paying attention, you're hitting the yellow line again. You're falling away from the will and desire of God. Your love for God is drifting. Your worship is stale. See, this is true. This bent away from worship is true for unbelievers and believers. It's true for unbelievers because Romans 1, you're right, uh, we, we don't even have we don't we don't even have to really dig deep. Uh, an unbeliever has exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things, and so their desire, while they desire to worship, and it should be directed to Yahweh, that all they can do is say, well, "What do I see? I will give glory to that because I should be giving glory to something, and I'm not sure what it is." But see, even as believers, because we're still in this fallen flesh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, believers will be bent in from time to time. Israel is our example. They have left Egypt redeemed. When you go and read Deuteronomy 4, God doesn't shy away from what they see. But what they see is not God, but the fruit of God's work. And and they've seen it. But not just that. They've, They've also heard God speak to them. But he has to remind them not to wander off. Not to be bent towards want to worshiping something that they can see. They knew God. They'd seen him, yet he gives them this commandment. So we must understand. We must guard our hearts. And ultimately, all of the movement away from God, categorize it as a believer or an unbeliever, is unbelief. Anytime you're shifting away from God and from true worship, it's due to unbelief. So... I'll just conclude it like this. We have to understand that as we worship, we cannot be looking to satisfy the flesh. Because when we do that, we, 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 we undermine faith. We undermine that which we've been called to. And I want you to understand something. Faith isn't blind, not in the sense of it's a leap in the dark. There is so much reason to believe. There is so much evidence to believe. But we believe 
in what is invisible. No one has seen God. But Christ has made him known. Thomas experienced this with the resurrected Christ. Thomas could not believe until he saw and touched. He needed to have his senses fulfilled. And by the grace of God, Jesus gave him that opportunity. But he says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So to conclude this point of our need by <clears throat> this point of our need of this commandment by helping us understand these two parts of the commandment. These two parts that says one way of worship is good, one way of worship is negative. Look back at your bulletin on the back of your bulletin. I'm going to try to do this quickly. So what we're getting into is these two questions, 45 and 46. What's what's required? What's forbidden? Well, we're going to start with 46, the negative. What's forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of, of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Uh, again, we read the commandment. Um, do not make an image out of anything uh, and then do not bow down and serve them but he concludes and says in this negative aspect at the end of verse 9 I am a jealous God visiting iniquity visiting iniquity why would this be such a problem and it's because it's a hundred percent contrary to what he has commanded israel to do in worshiping and following him go through deuteronomy go through the whole thing go through exodus go through leviticus and understand that everything is thus saith the lord the great Shema, which is which says who God is and what we ought to do. Love the Lord our God with all the heart, soul, mind, and soul. It's in Deuteronomy 6. How does it begin? See, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. To make something to put before you to worship for you to see is a hundred percent. It's not just contrary. God calls it iniquity, which means it's wicked. If you go, go and read Deuteronomy 4 this week, do it this afternoon and see this pattern. Look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 4. And now, O Israel, listen. Ha! Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you. And do them that you may live and go in and take possession. And then he goes on. And he goes, not only do that, but then go and teach your kids. And that's in, verse, in verses 1 through 14, he's establishing what they ought to do. And all of it is about listening and hearing and obeying and keeping 
And then he gets to verse 15. So he says, listen to me and obey me. And then verse 15, he says, but watch yourself. You saw no form on the day of the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the, of the fire. So he does, he's not saying, he's not saying, so don't go and worship a bird. He says, be careful. You saw no form of me. So when you worship me, verse 15, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. No, no, no. Here. And obey. And then as you go through 15 through 29, Moses actually prophesies that Israel will fall into this idolatry. He prophesies that they will turn, they will act corruptly, they will not just, they will just fail. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands and neither see nor hear or that they neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. So then he goes and speaks of a prophecy of something good to come. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. Now I want you to look at verse 30 and see what happens when this good thing happens. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, some could prophesy that this is a fulfillment of the new covenant. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Not see him, but obey his word and hear him. So what's required? I'm going to make this one real short. What's required of the second commandment? Requires the receiving, observing, keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. As God has spoken. But showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's Jesus say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I don't think that's by accident that he adds that that, that uh What's it called? Preposition. Who does the will of my Father who is in heaven? Can you see the Father who is in heaven? No. But then as the, after Jesus gets through the negative aspect of what he was teaching, he gets to the positive one. So who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. They can see Jesus. But he says, those who enter the kingdom aren't those who saw me, but those who hear the word and believe and do. So, application. 
three points quickly of application. And I wrote in my notes. And then we come to the table, which actually will happen next week. Um, points of application. Understand, evaluate, respond. Now, I might just let you know, this is a controversial commandment. If you didn't know, it is. You'll see in just a second. If we truly apply what we believe Scripture teaches. We must understand, first and foremost, is what our application is. We must understand that acceptable worship to the one true God is informed and performed through the Holy Scriptures. Acceptable worship is informed and performed through the Holy Scriptures by what God has said. That's the pattern that we have in our order of service. Revelation, response. Revelation, response. What God has said, how we respond and worship. We're informed by what God has said. And then even what we do in response to what he has said should be by what he has said. We don't get to decide how we worship God, but we worship as he has commanded. Our response is done and carried by the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, we have to understand that. And now we understand that, we evaluate. We evaluate our worship. We evaluate our use of images and idols. Now, we as... We have our Protestant roots really dug in, so we don't have images and idols of saints. We don't we don't have an image of Mary. Uh, we don't have sh- a strange relationship with the crucifix. Um, but there might be. We might have to check our heart as far as thinking that we need a cross to worship. But when I speak of a crucifix, I I I, I speak of a cross with Christ hanging upon it. We don't, we don't have that because we've because of our Protestant heritage out of uh, the Catholic faith. But there's a place we should consider and evaluate, and that's images of Jesus, the Son of God. Okay? Does the use of images of Jesus violate this commandment? This is the controversial part. This has been a, this has been debated for years. Let me give you the pro argument, then I'll give you the uh, the uh, against. The pro argument that images of Jesus or depictions of Jesus isn't a direct violation of the second commandment typically take one of two shapes, perhaps more, but the most two common are the commandment is made with the truth that as Deuteronomy 4.15 said, there was no form seen of God. And so then the argument is that God did take a form, and that form was a man. Jesus was a man. Therefore, the prohibition to make images of God pertaining to the Son in the flesh, that, that, that those two things aren't compatible. So we can have images pictures of Jesus, the Son of God. That's the first, typically one of your first arguments. The second one is that it is it is okay to take images of the Son, usually for the first reason, for an expression of art 
not worship. So it's not it's not that we're worshiping it, but that it's just an expression of beauty and of art. And uh, yeah, but the other the other flip side of that is is that we can use that as a tool for discipleship or teaching about Christ, the gospel, um, picture books, uh, Sunday school curriculum, um, cartoons for the kids, TV shows for adults. That these could be used in order to help teach and uh, engage people. In and who Christ is. Uh, that would be your pro argument. I, uh, let me give you uh, the argument against that. And I've I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I, I'm feeling as led against that pro argument. And let me give you the reasons why. And in contrast to those arguments that I just gave, um, for the first the first argument that because Jesus did take a form, right, he did become man, that removes the prohibition to not make an image uh, of God. Turn with me to Second Peter, chapter one, real quick. And I'll be honest, I never would have thought about this, and this was. Pretty much the convincing argument for me, and I wouldn't even have thought about it if Brother Dan hadn't even been gone through Second Peter in Sunday school. So please take advantage of Sunday school. Verse 16. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Again, I want you to pick up on seeing and hearing, visible images and word. Notice the, you'll see a pattern. Verse 16. Now, Peter is writing as an apostle, uh, and he is giving confirmation for the message the apostles are teaching, okay? He's trying to confirm or give affirmation to the gospel that's come from the apostles. Christ is long gone. Verse uh, Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So there, Peter and all the apostles and many more uh, saw, put their eyes on Jesus. They witnessed, or eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now we can also say that there were only three who witnessed it in a Glorious way, James, John, and Peter on what? The Mount of Transfiguration. They were the John mentions it and we saw and we beheld his glory. Right? It wasn't just that they saw Jesus, but that they saw him, uh, they, the unveiling of the glory. And we know that that is pertaining to that point because we see this in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So it's it's pretty safe to say that someone could have seen what they saw. 
But no one would have known what they had seen if they had not heard the voice of God from heaven. But notice then, as Peter is trying to affirm the the message of the gospel, what he then goes and does with this information. We ourselves... Heard verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic drawing. He doesn't say that. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, as we think about God on Mount Sinai, the movement for Israel... Was not that they had seen, but what they had heard. The same goes for the apostles. John, James, and Peter didn't come off the mountain and say, We've got to draw this. They said, No, we've got to tell this. And this telling, this word, is confirmed because not just that we saw the Son, but we heard. From the Father. Jesus says, I'm giving eternal life to those whom you have given me. And how did I give them eternal life? Not that I stood before them, but that I gave them your word. The word that you gave me, Father. And now Peter, James, and John, they go and they don't describe Jesus. No one described Jesus except John in Revelation. But we know that that was more than just what he looked like. But they go and tell of who he is. And so I don't think, I don't think as we look at the way the word was passed down and we know that Peter, like Moses, saw God on a mountain. It wasn't go and make what you saw, but go and speak what you saw. And so I I don't think the argument that because Jesus took, the Son of God took form, that then we can then imitate that form. No, the, the pattern holds. No eye has seen. But the Word of God is proclaimed. And that is what reveals Christ. That is what tells us the good news. And as far as the, the art the tool or the reminder, you know, we can use images to help or to, or to make beautiful art. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm going a little long here, but I, I want to press this a little bit. There, we have to think about uh, the intent behind the second commandment. So is, is it okay to have an art of Jesus or use him in your Sunday school curriculum, a picture of him? Well, there's two things I want us to always filter through that idea. Uh, both of these come from J.I. Packer, who is a, a uh, Anglican theologian, well-respected, a, a man of, of faith. He gives two 
two, two filters to run this through. Does the picture or image honor God or does it obscure his glory? So images of Christ fall short for they can only convey one nature. Do you understand what I'm saying? An image of Jesus only presents to us a man. But what is Jesus? Truly God and truly man. Anything, any, any image of Jesus that you see obscures his divinity. It falls short and does not glorify him as truly God. Only presents him as truly man. Uh, it displays, and Packer says this, and I agree, it displays his human weakness, which is that's not a problem. We know that Jesus had human weakness. He got hungry. He was sad. He got tired. But that wasn't his fullness. It, it displays his human weakness and conceals his divine strength. It, de- it depicts the reality of pain but keeps out of our sight the reality of his joy and his power. Christ is truly man and truly God. No image can represent Christ as he is. Therefore, I would argue it obscures the glory of his divinity, that he is truly God. And the second one is not just it does it dishonor God by obscuring his glory, but does it mislead by conveying a false idea of God? And I can't say it enough. Jesus in the flesh or before incarnation is God. God the Son. Well, by simple implication, if an image cannot depict the full truth of the the glory of Jesus as full of truly being man and truly being God, then we have to think that it is misleading or conveying that which is false. If you just see a man, all that you're telling people is that Jesus was a man. It's conveying something that isn't true. And here's where I think the, the danger is for us, very much so today, especially in a world of high speed internet. There's potential when we see those depictions that the false image, and we have to agree, no matter how good the picture is, it is a false image of Jesus. The false image will could potentially be the focus of our thoughts when we worship, pray, and read. I can tell you this by example. When uh, it is a struggle in my mind when I think about Jesus. Not to think of Jim Caviezel. <laughs> and what, hey, let me back up. The Passion of the Christ. The actor who portrayed Jesus is Jim Caviezel. That's who pops into my mind. He ain't Jesus. So, we, we have to understand. And we, we've got... You know, the, the many other weird portrayals of just art forms, um, you know, take into account the ones that are in our church now. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, permed, straight, whatever. 
It's not a depiction of Jesus. We have to evaluate what we speak when we put up an image of the Son of God. We have to, we have to think about it. Uh, you, there are movies, TV shows, the most popular one now, The Chosen. Most not most, people won't watch it because of its depiction of Jesus, right? Most people don't want to be reading John 17, 3 and see the guy who's acting as Jesus. Not to mention there are some uh, artistic freedoms done within that, which we can save that for a Wednesday night. I would not recommend putting before yourselves, whether in movie, art, TV, cartoon, an image of the Son of God. Because you're selling yourself short. My daughter's looking at me like, does that mean we can't watch uh, Superbook anymore? (laughs) Yeah, probably. Because my son told me that God wore armor And that was from Superbook because he was fighting the devil and he had on a suit of armor and he had blonde hair. Yeah. We we have to make sure that what we're communicating isn't an image because we don't have an image to communicate. But what do we have to communicate? His word. His word. I, I just want to finish with this. So let's prayerfully evaluate our worship and our lives regarding these things. The final one is response. As we are convicted and convinced by the word, we must respond in faith, confession, repentance, and in the pursuit of acceptable worship that is informed and performed by the word of God as found in the Holy Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, show us Christ. The glory that Peter, James, and John saw. Let us see it by the eyes of our heart. And worship him. Worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the appropriate, abundant manner that you so deserve. Search our hearts and show us if there be any grievous way in us that we might turn, hear, and obey. In Jesus' holy name, amen.